programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis. 52 Federal Avenue in historic downtown Logan, open seven days a week, and featuring triple certified coffee, a seasonal organic ethnic deli, and espresso bar with culinary gifts. Ordering and location information is at cafeibis.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. LaDonna Redman became a food justice advocate after her son developed food allergies, and she found that the healthy food she wanted to feed him wasn't available in her Chicago neighborhood. She says that fair and equal access to healthy foods affects the health and well-being of the community, and that food justice is tied to social justice, to issues of violence, poverty, and immigration. She advocates for dismantling the food industrial complex and returning to the tables of our ancestors to make our own food. LaDonna Redmond is the next speaker in the Tanner Talk series presented by the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Her talk, titled Food Plus Justice Equals Democracy, is Wednesday, April 8th from uh, noon to 1.30 p.m. in Old Main 115 on the USU campus, free and open to the public. LaDonna Redmond... uh, has received the Responsibility Pioneer Award from uh, Time Magazine, also the Green for All Fellowship, and uh, she has been responsible for uh, getting Chicago Public Schools to evaluate junk food. She's launched urban agriculture projects, started community grocery stores, and worked on federal farm policy to expand access to healthy food and production in communities. She uh, hosts a weekly radio show called It's Your Health and writes a bi-weekly column for Minnesota Spokesman Reporter. LaDonna Redmond, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. So uh, that's that, that's a lot you had on your uh, plate. So uh, we want to talk about a lot of this. I want to start with, uh, with where you began, your intersection with food justice. This began, as I mentioned in the open, with, with your son, I believe. Absolutely. You know, the, um, the the interesting part about it is, of course, before I had my son, I totally uh, was into food. I ate, I, you know, had my breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and never one time thought about, you know, where that food came from. I just thought that food was readily available. You just went and got it at the supermarket and put it on your, you know, in your pot and cooked it and, and ate it. And when I became a mom, I realized that there was more to the food system. Uh, my son uh, developed food allergies at a very early age. It was about six or seven months old when he began to show signs of um, food allergies. Uh, Wade is allergic to all dairy products, shellfish, eggs, and peanuts. And trying to feed him um, using the conventional food system that was around me was very, very difficult and challenging. And so that is really where I began my journey, just a deep desire to feed my son, a deep love for my son, I have to say, um, that would just really motivate me to look at the food system in a way that no mom would ever have to go through what I went through to feed my son. And you and your husband went on, I think, a very pretty logical journey, right? First, uh, grow some vegetables in the backyard, and then that progressed to vacant lot and urban farming, then... Then farmers markets. Uh, t- tell me about that journey. You know that journey was really very interesting because I think you know we, he, neither Tracy nor I thought uh, much about you know the big food landscape. Even though my husband at the time was a commodities broker, so he was around commodity products and trading them on a daily basis. And um, really, again, we hadn't thought much about 
you know, the food system, um, except we knew we had the sun and we had to get him some food. So um, trying to really cut some costs because I was shopping on a, a regular basis at stores like Whole Foods, um, and it was kind of expensive. I was still learning my way around the store, um, how to make the best out of um, my money. Uh, and, and that really spawned us into thinking, kicked us into thinking, well, you know, how can we really do this in an affordable way? So one way to cut our budget was that we started to grow our own food, particularly microgreens. There's a story that I tell around the microgreens. I was in the grocery store, and I, I love salads, fresh salads, and I'm looking at these microgreens, and they were like eight ninety nine a quarter pound or something like that. And I glanced over, and there was a pack of seeds that were microgreens, and they were $2. And I thought to myself, how hard could it be, right? Microgreens are like tiny. So I um, grabbed the greens, grabbed my microgreens, and that's really where we began thinking about growing our own food. From there, we began to participate in a community conversation. Um, I am a community organizer. I've lived in that particular community for well over 15 years at that time. And I started to talk to some of my colleagues at the other nonprofits around food. What are we doing about food? And that's when I started to hear the story of the supermarkets leaving the community some 20 years ago, um, people shopping outside of the community. And I became um, interested in food sustainability at the invitation of one of my other colleagues. Um, she ran a nonprofit called the Westside Health Authority, and at, she didn't know what food sustainability was. None of us had put those two words together, and someone had invited her to be part of a food sustainability cir um, circle. And she said, well, LaDonna, I don't know what that is, but why don't you go for me and come back and tell me what it is? And that's where we began to really look at the community issues around food access, that food sustainability circle turned into the Chicago Food Systems Collaborative, which involved many of the um, universities and colleges like University of Illinois and DePaul University, Loyola University, and we all sat down and started to really think about this question of food access and what we were really trying to say about our community in terms of its access to healthy food through supermarkets. Now, your journey is, is illustrative of, uh, you know, a uh, journey from a place where I think a lot of us are. We go to the supermarket and, and that's it, and um, to some food awareness and now to food justice. I wonder if you could talk first about food awareness. What, what would you say about that? What, what, what should we think about? Well, um, I think what I became aware of was that um, there's, there, I think there's a food awareness, you know, the actual nutrient value of food, you know, what does it do for me on the plate. But I think there's also a more political awareness that, um, you know, I had to cultivate, no pun intended, actually, but that was not what I was used to when I talked about food. What I usually um, thought when I encountered food at a restaurant or any place, wow, this is good, it's wonderful, whoever cooked it, it tastes great, and then you're done and you go on, and food just sort of becomes a backdrop. But when you make your plate sort of the center of your life and you add values to that plate, for example, you add the value of fairness or you add the value of justice or you add equity and health, then you start to look at food very differently. So this goes beyond just the individual diet and looks at, well, what does this food do for the people who prepared it? 
what has it done for the land? What has it done for the people who harvested the food? What is it doing when it leaves my home and my body? How is it impacting the earth in those ways too? So then you start to get really more of a food chain and start to say, well, I want food that supports the earth, that supports people, and of course supports my own health and the health of my community. So that's how that's the food awareness that I try to bring um, in my talks. What's the story behind the food that we're eating, and how can we tell the best story possible, which means that we would have to make the better choices? It's interesting. Uh, you have a TED Talk. It's easily available on the Internet, uh, uh, TEDx Manhattan. Yeah. Um, I was interested to, to hear you say, uh, you said we need to get beyond slogans. Slogans like... And then you quoted it. It's easier to get ketchup in some uh, communities, some neighborhoods, than it is to get a tomato. Yeah. You said, you know, of course, that galvanizes attention. But you say we need to get beyond that. Yeah, well, I mean, that was that was a cute. Someone made a, a, that comment. They tried to lighten up a phrase that I used, which is that um, I, I say that you can get a semi-automatic weapon easier than you can get a tomato in my community. So when you say you can get ketchup easier than you can get, you know, um, a tomato in the community, you can see how that really changes the intensity of what I'm saying. I meant what I said. I meant that in some neighborhoods, it's easier to get a gun than it is to get a tomato. So when we start to ask ourselves that question, well, why is it easier for someone to get a weapon than it is to purchase some food, then you start to say, wow, there's a real public health issue going on here, and the two are connected. So the public health issue around violence is connected to the public health issue of health disparities. But we have to really dig a little bit deeper and not really be so willing to cuten up phrases and use things like we can get ketchup easier than we can get a tomato. Well, that's not really what we're talking about. That's not a systems statement. That's a cute statement. And food desert is another one of those cute statements that takes us out of the intensity of the conversation. When we should be talking about poverty, we're talking about something cute like food deserts. So that, uh, that's a nice segue into, into food justice. What, uh, and you connect up food justice with social justice, as you just said. What, what are some other issues that, that would connect up with food in this context? Well, I think food, food really is at the center of our lives. Um, when you think about all of the major uh, events in a person's life when, you know, someone is having a baby. Um, you have a, a, a baby shower and there's food there. When someone makes their transition um, out of the physical body, there's food at the funeral, food at the repast. When someone's getting married or someone's graduating, the birthday parties, all of our lives are really enveloped by our food. So food tells stories. And so when we start to talk about this issue of justice, I go back to, well, what kind of narrative does the food movement tell us about, about food? Where are the stories, particularly the stories of communities of color and tribal nations, when we start to talk about food? One of the issues that I raised in, the, in that TED Talk that you mentioned is that narrative. The narrative of the food movement right now does not really include the stories of communities of color. And it's um, 
I think it's a, it's an, um, it's an, it's an, it's easy to make that omission, but I think we have to begin to include it because then when we start to include the perspectives of communities of color and tribal nations, then we can see how sustainability will will take every community along that path, as opposed to just saying that, well, all you need to do is vote with your fork, and if you can buy the food, then you can go get it. But if you can't buy the food, then we have to figure out a way to give it to you. And no, the economic equation in that statement is really false, because those communities of color also want economic revitalization. So the justice aspect of it is, how do we find a way to economically sustain support communities of color and tribal nations using food production, and not just agriculture in terms of growing and urban agriculture, but food processing, harvesting, creating value-added products so those communities can uplift themselves. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, you wrote an interesting piece recently, uh, LaDonna Redmond, uh, connecting uh, issues or saying we we ought to connect issues from uh, of um, of justice, social justice, criminal justice, and, and Ferguson to these food issues. I want to talk about that uh, a bit. And uh, continue on to, uh, to some solutions and how food justice perhaps connects up with what we think of the environmental justice movement and where it differs. It goes beyond that. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU's Anthropology Museum, Family First Saturday, exploring the dynamic cultural heritage of Israel. Saturday, April 4th, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. in Old Main. Public Radio attracts an audience that is focused on professional attainment. Do you have a product, service, or degree that can further their career growth? Let our listeners know by becoming a UPR program sponsor. For more information, call Terry Guy at 435-797-3215. Are you looking for clear and concise car advice? Sounds like the engine, huh? Yeah. 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 That was the one. Well, I think you ought to throw an engine in it. Really? Why not? Yeah. What that run? About a thousand bucks? I mean, if everything... well, if you just want to throw it in there, yeah, you want to, you want to hook it up and have it actually move the wheels. Yeah. No. Join us yeah. as we once again remind folks that it's only a car this week on the best of car talk. Sunday evening at five on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our topic today is food justice. LaDonna Redmond became a food justice advocate after her son developed food allergies. She found that the healthy food she wanted to feed her son was not available in her Chicago neighborhood. That took her and her family on a journey uh, from a backyard uh, garden uh, to urban farming to, to food justice. Her talk on the USU campus on Wednesday, April 8th, is titled Food Plus Justice Equals Democracy. It starts at noon on April 8th in Old Main 115 on the USU campus. It's free and open to the public. It's a part of the Tanner Talks series presented by the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Uh, we would love you to join the program if you would like. The ways to join it are the telephone number, toll-free anywhere, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. What do you think about these issues? Uh, you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. 
So, LaDonna Redmond, uh, you've connected up recently in a, in a piece you wrote, uh, issues that have come to the fore in Ferguson, Missouri, with with some of these issues of food justice. I wonder if you could tell us about that. Yeah, one of the um, things that uh, I'm always very um, attuned to is how can we connect the issues of food justice to um, social justice and kind of make it more real to people. I mean, most people don't put food and justice together. Um, and I think the opportunity that we had with the Ferguson uprising was to really try to make those connections. And so um, I wrote a piece um, that really called um, the connection up because Monsanto um, is in um, Ferguson. Well, not in Ferguson, but in near St. Louis. And Monsanto really is at the forefront of some of the things that we most want to change about the food system, which is the idea that um, life um, should be owned by someone else and they have the right to give or take life. And I thought that was an interesting connection because of the Black Lives Matter um, movement that's really sprouted up. But And black lives do matter, but and all life matters. And particularly the life of seeds and plants. We cannot have a just and fair food system if we lose control of our seeds. And the patenting on seeds that Monsanto has been doing and really at the forefront of, particularly around this issue of genetically modified um, food, is really one of those things that we have to call attention to. People have to become more conscious consumers and really understand what these issues are. And that's where I begin to compare the industrial food system with a system like the the industrial prison complex, uh, because these relationships that perhaps my Monsanto has with the food system really aren't known to the general public. Most folks don't know who Monsanto is, and when Monsanto does go on a public um, campaign to improve its image, really it comes across as being a helper of the world and you know really trying to feed everyone. But really, when we start to dig into some of those really great statements, we find out that some of the stuff that Monsanto is um, affiliated with are things that many people feel are destroying the world. Now, uh, a lot of people, of course, would agree with you on Monsanto GMOs and and pesticides. Uh, There are some, even within the environmental movement, however, who say that to to feed the world, if you look at this as a global scale, it's going to have to include GMOs and, and, uh, you know, some of these patented crops. Yeah. Yeah, and I can I I think that's an interesting it's an interesting statement, but I would back it up back up just a little bit. One of the things that I found out when I was doing my research to feed my son, I really wanted my son to have the best food possible. And for me, that meant food that was free from pesticides and, and harmful and grown with harmful um, fertilizers, also free from his food allergens. And then I started to read about genetically modified food. And, and, and I don't remember anyone giving me the choice. So I think that that's a valid mm-hmm. argument, but I think we have to step back a little bit because I think we have to, as consumers, choose to use genetically modified food to feed the world. And right now, the people who have chosen that for us are the corporations who basically will make a lot of money feeding the world. But we, but we as consumers weren't given that choice, and I think that, for me, is the biggest problem. It wasn't even about the science around GMOs. I'm not necessarily a scientist. Well, I'm not a scientist at all. I don't even play one on television. <laughs> but 
I really think that it's really about choice. And for me as a mom, wanting to feed my son what I thought was the best food, that wasn't a choice that I wanted to make for my my son. I wonder if you could uh, expand on that a little bit. I think for uh, people who maybe live next to the farm, it's it's that's it's more likely here in Utah. Uh, in a in a big urban center, um, I wonder if you talk a little bit about the difficulties in in trying to get some some of these choices. Uh, as you say, there's not even a supermarket, perhaps in in place where you live. Well, we're talking about choice on a couple of different levels. So we're talking about um, genetically modified as choice among all of us. You know, somehow having some say-so on a national food policy is one scale of choice. But as an individual, really understanding that that particular choice is really related to choices that are on the ground in our community. We only have one food system. So the consolidation that has driven our food system to basically have six companies that that represent the majority of SKUs in our supermarkets as is also related to the consolidation of the retail market where we only have Walmart as the major um, seller of food in the grocery store uh, market. So you've got um, um, uh, Walmart and you've got Target and I think that's pretty much it and Walmart is way out ahead of everyone else. So that kind of consolidation shows up in well shows up in our community as an, as an absence an absence of retail and it doesn't really matter whether it's urban or rural it's not there and so urban and rural communities are on the same continuum and that's also one of the things that injustice does it, help, it pits communities against each other so it's either we're for urban and we're against rural or we're for rural and we're against urban. But when we're talking about justice, justice is for everyone. And there can't be one just community and injustice exists around it. So justice has to go along the continuum, create solutions that are appropriate for each of those communities. You've said elsewhere that we've compartmentalized work on food systems. One group of people works on organic, other group of people works on closing factory farms. And uh, what what you say is what you know we're all trying to get to people that work in this is a fair, just, and healthy food system. So how do you bring people together? Well, you know, one of the ways that we've done that is to um, we had a conference a couple of years ago called Food Plus Justice Equals Democracy, where we brought people together to really begin to look at well, how do we all you know create a big enough tent to work together and work on the things. Um, that we most agree on together and those things that we don't agree on, then we don't have to work on those things. I don't know if if you all, you know, many of your listeners are familiar with nonprofits, but we end we tend to talk ourselves out of a, a good idea before the end of a meeting. We can have a good idea, but then we just immediately talk ourselves out of it. And one of the things that we talk ourselves out of is how do we work together on the things that we agree upon instead of trying to just overemphasize where we disagree. Um, th- at that conference, we had had about 400 people show up here in Minneapolis, and we created a set of principles that's still kind of running around the, the, the country that really tried to um, get our arms around some of the issues that people are concerned about. For example, having organic producers at the table with people who are talking about worker rights and justice is really very important, particularly farm labor. 
is very, very important. Otherwise, we leave out a crucial part of the conversation around justice. How do we pay people a fair wage that are harvesting our food? We can't forget that part of the food system. And then we also have to have folks that are on the ground that are working in urban communities trying to do urban agriculture, which is still very new, if you will, and still um, really reliant on philanthropic support, not quite finding its market in terms of being able to create sustainable businesses and jobs and things like that. So that was one way to get people together. And we did that in a people's, using a process called People's Movement Assembly. So folks came in and they sat and they really just talked about the issues for whether we were talking about production or whether we were talking about people who had limited resources and couldn't buy the food that they needed to buy and needed support to do it. How can we all work together to build that system? So that's one way that we can get get that going. If you just joined us, we're talking with LaDonna Redmond. She is a food justice advocate, and uh, she advocates for food justice. Her talk uh, on the USU campus coming up uh, next week is Food Plus Justice Equals Democracy. That's on Wednesday, April 8th, beginning at noon in Old Main 115. It's free and open to the public. It's on the USU campus, and it is presented by the USU College of Humanities and Social Science, part of the Tanner Talk series. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. And LaDonna Redmond, I wonder, I'm curious about an intersection that I think a lot of people would agree with you. We need to work on all of these issues. But I'm curious about, uh, you know, living wage, improving wages for farm workers. Also, it includes issues of immigration. But but if you raise the wages, which I think a lot of people would agree with, that would probably increase the price of food. Then you intersect that with issues of poverty. And our people are going to be able to buy the food that you know the most need it. Perhaps have the most trouble buying the food. What do you talk a bit about that? Where, uh, if you're intersecting all of this, I guess you have to look at how how this might intersect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think you, you've got the right you know um, the the right parts of the equation there. Um, first, we have to pay people a fair wage. Well, if if folks are employed and they're paid a fair wage, then they're able to buy the food that they need. So now we've got people being paid fairly for their time. They've got the money to buy the food, and then they can, and then the food becomes more available. Will the price of food go up? I think yes, of course it will, because it has to, because now you're paying the real cost of food. I think Americans, particularly in the United States, are really used to cheap food, and our cheap food system is really what's killing us. And so, cheap food really isn't what what's going to get us by because cheap food keeps our workers not getting paid fairly. I always tell people who ask me about, you know, we want fair wages and then they say, but the food has got to be cheap. Those two things don't quite go together. So when you're really talking about fair wages, you have to be also talking about paying fair prices to everyone else who's um, working in that food system. And so being willing to pay our fair portion as consumers for food that really is helping people stay in their homes and feed their families is really a value that we have to really condition people to accept again. But as long as we have a cheap food system, we'll continue to see people staying in poverty. We'll continue to see chronic diet-related diseases because the cheapest food is generally the food that's highest processed, and we have studies and research that shows that much of that food is really um, related to our in, um, the, uh, the rise in chronic diet-related diseases.
you made a, a statement, I think this was in your TED Talk, that struck me. You said uh, we we got to get beyond the farm bill. That You pointed out that we organize a lot of these issues, our thoughts, our action, a lot of these issues that you've been talking about around the farm bill. So what what would future look like if we got beyond the farm bill? I think if we got beyond the farm bill, we'll find ourselves thinking about a national food policy. And um, a few months ago, uh, Mark Bittman, Michael Pollan, uh, Olivier DeShooter, and Ricardo Salvador put a piece um, uh, in the uh, Washington Post that really um, laid out the framework by which we might be able to create a national food policy. Uh, as a as an organizer in the food movement, we tend to all focus on the Farm Bill, and that makes a lot of sense, but the Farm Bill does not give us a national food policy. It's just a way to spend money that gives some support to our food system. But there are many government agencies that, are, that have a say-so in our food system, but are not necessarily impacted by the Farm Bill. If we can really think about a national food policy, some of these things that I'm talking about, um, access issues, whether it's access to supermarkets or access to the money to buy the food or access to land, can be um, taken into a national food policy and given some direction and support as far as, well, how do we really clear and clear up some of these health disparities that we say are impacting our neighborhoods and communities? This is a good place to, uh, this email came in a little earlier, this is a good place to bring it in. This is Steve uh, emailing us, which by the way, you, you can do at upraxcess at gmail.com. You can call us at 1-800-826-1495. This is what Steve says. The New York Times' Mark Bittman has made healthy food and food justice his journalistic beat, and it would seem his personal cause. He's turned this into a regular op-ed column and a Times-sponsored blog. And Steve adds, parenthetically, it's hard to imagine the gray lady, referring to the New York Times, becoming journalistically involved in such matters even a few years ago. Uh, Steve continues, it is Bittman who has made me aware of the issue you and your guest are discussing, and I wonder... If your guest finds that Bittman is helping her bring Americans' awareness to them, so and you, I think, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I, <laughs> no. Go go ahead. Um, I would say yes, of course. Um, I think there's a broader conversation um, that has to happen in the dominant culture. And that conversation is that there are issues of food and food justice, where I wish that Mark Bittman and Michael Pollan and those guys um, like that would do a little bit more work is around how some of these issues impact communities of color. I think some of their writing leaves out um, the real impacts. And sometimes they touch upon them in a little bit. So, yes, of course, him writing in the New York Times really does help uh, my uh, my cause. And I use his articles and work quite a bit. Actually, I use a lot of his cookbooks, too. So oh, yeah. he's, he's, he's got a <laughs> wonderful cookbook. I recommend it all the time. I buy it for everybody. Uh, what if you tell me a little bit more about uh, what you envision, national food policy, and then you, you would go beyond what this op-ed that uh, was referenced. Um, what, what, what's your vision? Um, one of the things that I would uh, make sure of um, being included in national food policy is an opportunity for entrepreneurs who are working in food to get some resources into the communities that most need um, 
this retail food access or even distribution access. One of the issues even with the organic food movement and the sustainable food movement is distribution. So building some of these institutions and businesses really is capital intensive. And if we could have a government um, investment in terms of infrastructure to support the development of local food systems beyond just growing the food, uh, but the actual infrastructure and bricks and mortar that's necessary to um, transport food and to move it around and to store it appropriately, um, that would be really wonderful. The other thing is that these retail grocery stores where people are trying to get retail access in urban communities and rural communities also is capital intensive. So for me, national food policy would prioritize the development of locally owned businesses in those communities and de-emphasize the the um, national chain grocery stores and, um, and, and stop really kind of promoting them as the solution to, quote, unquote, the food deserts. So the, <laughs> that's a heavy lift, isn't it? Uh, that's, that's where we're used to going. Yeah, that's a, it's a heavy lift, but somebody's got to do it. I mean, our communities are already suffering under um, under the pressure of the of the food um, system, um, not being able to buy the food that you that you need, not having enough money to buy the food, not being paid a fair wage. Even if you pick the food, you can't afford to buy that food that you harvest. Um, we already are in a in a tight situation, and to get out of it, it's going to take quite a bit of work. We'll take another break. When we come back, uh, we'll talk more with LaDonna Redmond. She's a food justice advocate. She's coming to Logan uh, to give a presentation in the Tanner Talk series from the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. That talk is titled Food Plus Justice Equals Democracy, and it's Wednesday, April 8th, beginning at noon in Old Main 115. It's free and open to the public. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or at upraxis at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter. Uh, Use the handle at Utah Public Radio. When we come back, I want to uh, follow up with uh, LaDonna Redmond's vision. Uh, She has written that uh, dreaming big, the vision, includes no hungry people and uh, tackling issues of poverty. We'll follow up with that. Also, she's involved in a community co-op. Talk about that and maybe some, some local Solutions. More following the the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Humanities Council. Empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Online at utahhumanities.org. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. This week on The Splendid Table, we look at the hard ecological truth around our love of almonds. They've surpassed peanuts in popularity, but at a great cost. Join us. That's this week on The Splendid Table, the show about life's appetites from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment now with LaDonna Redmond. Uh, She became a food justice advocate after her son developed uh, food allergies. She found a healthy food that she wanted to feed him wasn't available in her Chicago neighborhood. And uh, she says that fair and equal access to healthy foods affects the health and well-being of the community. 
that food justice is tied to social justice, to issues of violence, poverty, and immigration. We've talked about uh, a lot of this. And uh, I want to move to maybe some local solutions, LaDonna Redmond. So uh, you and your family uh, went on this trajectory. You're finding, trying to find some food for your healthy food for your son. And so you do the backyard uh, garden and you have urban farming, go to farmer's markets. And uh, eventually uh, you get into a, kind of a broader work, still local, rebuilding local food systems. I wonder if you talk about that, that journey, what, what you did initially and what you've gotten involved in. One of the, um, I guess, the beginning uh, place of that was uh, converting vacant lots to urban farm sites. Um, and then once we did that, of course, we had to sell the food. And um, our community at that time um, had, uh, had a number of meetings, and we decided to start a farmer's market. And so we started to grow food with the intention of um, selling it at the farmer's market and at the same time work to develop a grocery store um, in our community. Um, from there, we started to kind of move food, move, food, move food around, and we were working with um, some farmers in Wisconsin, and we created a, a little distribution system. Um, we purchased a refrigerated truck and started to sell our produce to restaurants in downtown Chicago. Um, and then from there, uh, we started to really work on public policy and, and the Farm Bill. And I think you talked a little bit about our work with the institutions, the various institutions, particularly Chicago Public Schools. Um, and uh, from there, for me, I really got very involved in public policy because I could see that a lot of the work that I was doing on the ground was very, very important, but really lacked a public policy infrastructure. Um, there really wasn't a whole lot of um, ordinances or regulations that supported the work, and so I felt that when I left, you know, the work might leave, or if my family moved away, the work would stop. And, and of course, I didn't want to do that because the issues of food access were very important to me. And it wasn't just about my family. It was about um, all, all families, all communities. Um, from that time till now, I'm involved in developing grocery stores. And uh, so I moved to Minneapolis about four years ago and um, started to work on uh, with a, a supermarket here or a local cooperative called Seward Community Co-op. And uh, as the education and outreach coordinator, I was hired to work with an African-American community um, to embrace and support the development of a cooperative grocery store. And um, that store will open in October of this year. Oh, interesting. Well, congratulations. We should Thank mention, you. we've talked a lot about Chicago. That's where you were. You're now in the Twin Cities, I believe. I am, yes. Yeah. Uh, so tell me a little bit more about about Seward Community Co-op. Is this a model that uh, other communities can adopt? I think so. Um, uh, one of the things that I had learned back in Chicago was about cooperative um, development. And at the time, the, um, the word cooperative sounded, I think, too much of a social service endeavor for many people. Most folks who grocery shop or go to the grocery store really just want the regular kind of retail experience that everybody else gets. They don't want to feel that someone is trying to supervise their purchases or, you know, um, or monitor them in any kind of way. So um, it sounded like, I think, when we were talking about cooperatives, I think many people misunderstood what a cooperative was and just simply, you know, weren't very interested in it from the standpoint of developing one. Um, so this model, though, I think is very important because, as I said before, it's really very capital intensive to try to build a grocery store. 
one person really can't do it unless you're super wealthy. And even then, you know, you take on a tremendous amount of risk. But what cooperatives um, offer our communities is an opportunity for many people to come together, put their money together and their resources, and build something that one person just couldn't build on their own. Um, and so Sewer Community Co-op is really um, an example of that. It's forty-two year. It's a 42-year-old co-op. Uh, the Twin Cities have such a rich history of cooperatives. Uh, but this one is 42 years old and has 13,000 families um, as owners. And um, in the, we're in the middle of a, a growth uh, period. We have um, developed the Friendship Store, which I just spoke about, as well as a co-op creamery cafe. And um, we really are branching out in ways to serve our customers the best food possible. So um, I'm very excited about working here because, as you can probably tell, 15 years ago when I started this work, I was a long way away from learning anything about developing grocery stores, and now I've been able to really see one come to an African-American community. So the next step is, well, how do we as a cooperative really began to have a narrative that embraces an African-American community because a lot of the pushback at the beginning of the project was that co-ops were for white people and uh, the food wasn't affordable and um, it wasn't food that was culturally relevant. And so we had to really get down to the nitty-gritty here and really figure out, one, how do we um, shift that narrative because co-ops do have a rich history of African-American engagement. And, uh, of course, healthy food isn't just for white people. Healthy food is for everybody, and much of the food here is culturally appropriate. And, of course, we've had to change some of uh, our product mix to accommodate the new community. I'd like to go now uh, from the, the local to to global. Uh, maybe we could uh, put in a context of, of local. Uh, you've, uh, you've said that, uh, I guess, the... The biggest part of, the, I guess, the end result of food justice is no hungry people, right? Get rid of hunger. So that, that's a yes. big that's a big vision. How how do we accomplish that's that? That's a big that's a big one. But we got to know where we're going, don't we? Unless we we won't get there. <laughs> I, I guess so. Yeah, we have to have, you know, we have to really think about this. And and that's one of the reasons why the phrase food desert um, irritates me so much is because it really gives us the some kind of illusion that we can, one, we can use the ecosystem as a place to describe lack, which is inappropriate, but that we can really just uh, evade uh, the issues of poverty. We really have to tackle poverty. We really have to talk about fair wages. We really have to talk about um, adequate education, and we have to talk about access issues, and we we have to talk about them in a way that solves them. So we really do have to talk about ending poverty, and just like we talk about ending hunger. But we should not. No child in the United States, in the United States, or any place in the world, should go to bed hungry with as much food as as th- that is thrown away in the world. There should be. No hungry people. And if there are no hungry people, it's because we've done something to eliminate poverty. Hmm. So there are, obviously there are some programs which uh, for some people are insufficient. So uh, food stamps, um, okay. you know, the, the, the schools provide meals. What, what, what beyond that would you or different from that would you envision? 
Well, I think those are those are great programs, but we have to we have to take it um, we have to take it up a, a little bit. We we have to wage we have to raise the minimum wage. We have to start paying a fair wage. I think that's the biggest. That could be the biggest. Um, uh, opportunity to get people out of poverty if folks are paid a fair wage. So many of the 50 million Americans that are receiving food stamps right now are working, and they're not—they're just not getting paid enough. Many of them, half of the folks that are on food stamps are children. So of course they can't work, but they're fam- they are in families where they've got working parents who just aren't bringing in enough money. So for me, not just raising the minimum wage, but um, paying people a living wage is really what's going to lift people out of poverty. Hmm. I want to read you this comment. Uh, this this came in in response to an interview that you gave in uh, the Twin Cities. Uh, let me get, get to this here. The uh, Twin Cities Daily Planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Kurt. He says, I contend we do not have a food problem in this country so much as we have a cooking problem in this country. Uh, I think he I think he essentially agrees with some of the points you made, but he's changing emphasis. Too many people have forgot how to cook never or never learned uh, or think it's too difficult or time consuming or expensive. And it's none of those things in a very real way. It is the most substantive, tangible way we demonstrate our love of family and friends. I'd like to see a movement to inspire legions of cooks. Wonder what you say to to Kurt's comment there. A good, that's a good point. Um, I, I agree that I think that's part of, you know, really reclaiming our table. Um, I talk a little bit about that. Uh, one of the things that really pushed me toward thinking about the food system personally was that I had to prepare food for my son. It and it was not just. You know, I you know I didn't have anything else to do, but my son's got to eat, and my family's got to eat. So learning how to cook, and then really, I could not rely on processed food. So we had to go to whole nutritious food or whole food, if you will. So um, vegetables and um, sustainably produced meats, and I used organic um, produce and grains were really the way that we put our plate together. And so really going back to old food, uh, whole food, and um, I guess the old way of cooking, which of course took me into the traditions of soul food, and so preparing the rice and beans for my family was really the way that I learned how to um, how to make food justice real for me. I think the other aspect of that too is is to really understand that the industrial food system really relies on us being able to be afraid of cooking. Um, we're always pushed convenience from the drive-through in terms of fast food to you know um, hot pockets that you can pop in the microwave to thing you know minute rice you know everything just takes just a few seconds and we really have to understand that that convenience is also a part of some of our health issues is that we do have to take the time to actually prepare food we have to take the time to actually eat the food and I know everyone feels like well I'm all out of time but you know, if you have a chronic diet-related disease, you have to change the way that you eat. And that's where generally people get the inspiration. They have to get sick or someone around them gets sick, and then they have a metamorphosis around the table. But I, I agree with Kurt. I think he's absolutely right. 
And we are uh, out of time. Uh, it'll be very interesting. Uh, the talk is coming up in Logan next week. LaDonna Redmond, food justice advocate. Her talk is titled Food Plus Justice Equals Democracy. And that's Wednesday, April 8th from uh, beginning at noon. It's an old main 115. It's free and open to the public. It's part of the Tanner Talk series from the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Uh, LaDonna Redmond, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, join me tomorrow for Access Utah. I'll be talking with historian James Whiteside. In 2005, he bought a Harley-Davidson Softail, christened it Old Blue, and set off a series of far-reaching motorcycle adventures. Over six years, he traveled more than 15,000 miles. He visited Dodge City, Santa Fe, Wounded Knee, many other locales. And then he talks about how the past connects up with the present. Old Blue's Road is the topic for tomorrow and hope you'll join me. Thanks for joining me today for Access Utah. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton. Imagine you're driving down the road on your way to work when suddenly your car shuts off and coasts to a stop, just like it does after a nuclear attack. You make it to the side of the road, but you have no power. The first person you phone is your son, who seems to know how to fix such things, and he tells you it's time to update your car. Quote, If you don't upgrade your software, it will not work on today's roads, he tells you with a tone that indicates he's trying his best to be patient. You are reluctant to update your car because the last time you did in 2005, the headlights stopped working, you had to buy a new key to start it, and your middle initial changed. But the bottom line is, your car won't move, and you have to get to work. So you decide to do the deed. And 30 minutes later, after 92 updates, your car starts right up. At first, it all seems normal until you get to your first stop sign and roll through it. That's when you find out what used to be your turn signal now function as your brakes. And your turn signal is only activated by calling out to Slurpee, a clueless robotic woman who's hard of hearing. You, of course, don't figure this out until your son comes to help you get your car pushed back from the tree that you nearly ran over. He tells you that he's never had such problems with his car and that, as far as he can remember, turn signals have always activated his brakes. He tells you that it must be a, quote, generational thing, which means he thinks you're too stupid to change the channels with a TV remote control. I made up this car analogy to help you understand how I feel about my laptop and smartphone. Every time I'm forced to update my computer or smartphone, it takes me weeks to recover and pull my devices away from the proverbial electronic trees that they start crashing into again. I know the problems I have are not imagined, and this is not a generational thing. It's true that when my computer stops working, I have no idea how to fix it. It's also true that when I fly somewhere and it's announced that there will be a delay due to mechanical problems, I do not offer to fix the broken 737. I never know how to get those things running, and I do not know how to defragmentate my hard drive. The last time my computer crashed, which was just recently, I decided to carefully read things posted online and fix it myself. The problem with that is, usually the first line of instruction includes a directive that I could not execute even if someone was threatening my life. In my case, it told me that I might be able to fix my computer if I had Linus on a thumb drive. I did not. And the instructions didn't say if it had to be the whole Charlie Brown Christmas special or just a few pictures of the kid with a blanket. Made no sense to me. Computer problems seem to be a permanent part of my life for now. My son would probably roll his eyes and say, well, what do you expect? It's true. I purchased a laptop 
which I naively try to use every day now back in July of this year. It's almost five months old. It's probably way outdated by his standards. When I was in college, I do remember having to purchase new notebooks when my pad would run out, but after I did, the paper in the new notebook worked the same way it did on the outdated pad. Uh, things were simpler back there on, the, on Walton's Mountain. It's also complicated now. I wonder why I don't have Linus on a thumb drive. He seemed to understand the true meaning of not only Christmas, but everything else. And that's what it's all about, Steve, he would tell me in that simple Linus intonation I now hear whenever I read the Christmas story from the Bible. Thank goodness old Linus has never been updated. Some things should never be updated. And yes, I know that makes no sense to people who have never empathized with the plight of Gilligan and the professor too. Maybe it's a generational thing. This is Steve Eaton. And thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio. Um, just a announcement to our listeners. Today is the day we have until the end of this day to raise just over $3,000 to hit our spring fundraising goal. An additional $7,500 from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread is on the line. We'll keep you updated throughout the day with how close we are. And those numbers will be updated with you with your pledge as you pledge. So renew your support or become a new U- UPR member today. Because you listen, be a member, go to upr.org to make your contribution. Congratulations to Neil Holt, director of the Space Dynamics Laboratory, who has been honored with Utah Governor's Medal for Science and Technology. Holt will be presented with the honor at an award ceremony on April 15th in Salt Lake City. UPR would like to congratulate Neil Holt on his honor of Utah Governor's Medal for Science and Technology. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu slash hr. In addition to the 25 million people in this country who have been diagnosed with diabetes or who have it but don't yet know that they do, an estimated 79 million people have entered the danger zone known as pre-diabetes. Their blood glucose levels are higher than normal but have not yet risen to the level at which they would indicate a diagnosis of diabetes. In people with prediabetes, the pancreas may not be working as efficiently as it once did, or the body may be gradually building a resistance to the insulin it produces so that the hormone can't do as good a job of clearing glucose from the bloodstream. The good news is that type 2 diabetes is preventable. Diabetes prevention is as basic as eating more healthfully, becoming more physically active, and losing a few extra pounds, and it's never too late to start. This is Lisa for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Thank you for listening to Utah Public Radio. Don't forget, just shy of our goal, we have until today to reach $7,500 from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread. Time now, 10 o'clock, upr.org, to make your contribution. <laughs>